This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. So welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. Once again, my name is Greg. I appreciate everyone being here, everyone joining us today on your weekend Liberty podcast here in California. Make sure to subscribe, follow, like, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and we're going to try to put this one up on YouTube and uh, and Rumble. I always say that. I'm trying to get up to speed with the video platforms, but bear with us. Um, on all of your audio platforms, even Audible, make sure to subscribe, like us, um, and then also on Instagram at California Liberty Project and occasionally on Twitter or X, whatever it's called. So once again, thank you. And I'm very glad to be joined today by another candidate here in California. Um, very interesting person. Hopefully you're following him on social media. I'm glad to meet him. His name is Alex Balikian, and he is running for California's 30th district in the United States House of Representatives. So he wants to be your congressman if you're down there I believe it's the Glendale Burbank area. We'll talk about that in a second. But first, let me welcome you to the podcast. Alex, uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself. And once again, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Rick, for having me. Uh, Yeah, Alex Balekian here. I am a lifelong resident of Glendale, California. Uh, I'm a practicing physician. I've been here nearly all my life, except for three years that I spent in Texas for my residency. Um, I am running this campaign at the same time that I run my medical practice. Uh, I am fiscally conservative, socially moderate. I've been a lifelong Republican, but probably for the last 20 years, I've been a disenfranchised Republican. Uh, So I am here to represent the average person uh, in lieu of electing another corrupt uh, career politician. And I'm here to represent all of us in the middle of the road be it if you're a a moderate Republican, moderate Democrat, or an independent libertarian, what have you, you're in the middle of the road and you feel abandoned by these two extremes that we seem to be uh, party to uh, over the last uh, couple of election cycles. Very good. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Um, I must admit, I'm I'm not a centrist. I'm a radical. uh, So you have to bear with me or whatnot. (laughs) I'm an extremist. Um, extremists for, for liberty. That, that's the thing I want to get away from. I'm worried about the uniparty. You know, they seem to be like really, really close. I want to see more. I want to pull them apart a little bit. Um, right. But we'll get into to, to some of that. Um, so it, we talked about District 30. And am I correct that that's largely, uh, you mentioned Glendale. Is it also kind of Burbank? And what other, what other cities around LA's periphery um, are included in District 30? So it's huge. It's a very large uh, mishmash of different neighborhoods. So uh, Glendale, Burbank, Hollywood, West Hollywood, Hancock Park, Echo Park, Silver Lake uh, stretches up towards Sunland and Tahunga, goes up um, almost all the way up to to the Lancaster area, stops just south south of the Antelope Valley Freeway. So it is a very large uh, geographic area that encompasses a lot of different um, political preferences. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, you would you would almost think like, you know, around uh, whatever Silver Lake, Hollywood, West Hollywood, that that would, you know, have have enough population right there. But maybe they kind of gerrymandered it to reach out and, and grab some of the Burbank, Glendale 
right. Democrats, I'm assuming. Um, right. Is it like a, a D plus 20 kind of district or what's, do you know approximately I, the, the Republican Democrat split? I believe so. If I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's closer to D plus 30, uh, maybe a D plus 35. Got you. Okay. So we really, we really are going to be looking at you breaking through and just speaking, speaking, hopefully common sense to really reach those, those voters who maybe just are automatically kind of, I don't know, they just go to the polls and hit D every time, you know, like on zombie robot mode or, or, right. or so, I mean, I don't want to disparage your constituents, but no, the, so I mean, but that's what people do, right? I think really the big goal in this election is to reach people and get them engaged, uh, reach, reaching people as a no name, right? First time running individual is going to be difficult enough, um, but also engaging people uh, just because they said they are on autopilot. And also with the climate, the political climate as it is today, if you're a Democrat, you see the R, you immediately turn off uh, and vice versa. If you're right. an R, you, you see the D and you immediately turn off. So I am here to try to speak to people um, and to try to break through that and say, look, all of us, 80, 85% overlap, we're in the middle and we have these very reasonable policies and we shouldn't really get caught up in that RD dichotomy. Right, right. And it's kind of scary that um, Adam Schiff has, has won so many elections there in that in that district. It's kind of like, yeah, well, we mentioned autopilot. It's I don't really know why else someone would vote for this guy um, with his uh, well, record of accomplishment and, and smearing the last uh, administration. So, yeah, the, I'll, I'll tell you one of the biggest reasons why he hasn't gotten elected here is because there's a very large Armenian community. And over the last 20 years, he has managed to swindle the Armenian community by saying the G word, genocide. Um, and with the Armenians, mm -hmm. if you say G, genocide, they say, oh, my God, you know, I love you. I'm loyal to you. And Armenians, once they're loyal to somebody, they tend to be loyal for, for a long time. So I'm here to essentially pull the curtain back and say the painful truth to Armenians, how they've been swindled out of millions of dollars of donations to somebody who says a lot of words, thoughts and prayers, so to speak, for the Armenian cause, but really his actions have, have spoken otherwise. Um, and so that is one of the big reasons why he's con continued to be elected is because he has pandered with a lot of lip service to the Armenians. Um, and they are, I think, finally coming to terms with the fact that that is all it has been. Uh, that's an inter interesting perspective, certainly. Um, I'm wondering, too, if maybe within the Armenian-American community, uh, largely centered around Glendale, is there is there a real skepticism now toward NATO and all this interventionism? And certainly folks like me are very concerned about uh, the growing militarism and the bellicosity toward Ukraine. And it almost seems that the people in Washington, are they want to get us into World War III. But I'm thinking specifically with NATO, with Armenians, maybe um, having some skepticism about, you know, maybe from 100 years ago with Turkey, Turkey being in NATO. Um, is this does this give us some daylight maybe to to step back from all the the hundreds of mil billions that we spend um, on militarism and on NATO and foreign adventurism? I, I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah. So what I've um, so Armenians tend to be very. Um, nihilistic about things. They say, oh, you know, whoever I vote for, it's going to be the same crap. You know, if I vote the R, if I vote the D. Um, so then they tend to be disengaged that way because no matter whom you vote for, it'll still be the status quo. They will perpetuate the status quo. Um, so that is generally how Armenians view it. Now, um, as you mentioned, Turkey is a member of NATO and has been since 1956. 
Um, and I'm just trying to point out, you know, for example, with Adam Schiff, you know, Adam Schiff says, oh, you know, let's help out Armenia. You know, in the last 10 years from 2010 to 2020, that Adam Schiff was on um, the House Appropriations Committee. And right, the, what does the House Appropriations Committee do? You said that the, the Congress is the power of the purse. The Appropriations Committee is a very powerful group of about 30, 35 people who line item by line item determine where all the money goes. Um, and so he's been on that for the last 10 years. And so I said, you know, in the last 10 years where the foreign aid to Armenia has gone down by 22%, the aid going to Turkey has increased sevenfold. Right, right. And that is near almost entirely via NATO. Um, so that is one way that um, I think Armenians would sour, um, not really on NATO, but just how money essentially is being laundered to Turkey via NATO. Number two, and more importantly, in the, in the recent past, in the last three or four years, um, with all of the unrest that's going on in Ukraine, um, right? So we know that uh, oil companies, different oil companies, oil and gas companies are making uh, huge profits. So American oil and gas imports to Europe have increased because of the instability in Ukraine, where previously that is where, you know, from uh, Ukraine and Russia, Europe would get its oil and gas. But a lot of people also don't know that they have probably uh, gotten a third of their new gas shipments from Azerbaijan. Um, and Azerbaijan is shipping it over. It's almost, I mean, it's a, I don't know if it's a secret, if it's an open secret that they are effectively laundering Russian oil and gas down south through the Caspian, through the Caucasus, through Azerbaijan, and then over to, to Europe with their gas pipelines. Um, so they are still buying Russian gas just through the uh, Azerbaijani middlemen. And because of that, President Aliyev um, has undertaken a blockade of Artsakh, which is an enclave mm -hmm. of ethnic Armenians. Um, and the Armenians here have been trying uh, to bring attention to that. I don't know if you saw that they shut down the 134 freeway recently and also Wilshire Boulevard uh, more recently in, in West L.A. Um, and so because of he has that to hold over the Europeans, that is why he's able to flout all of the international norms. Uh, so for those couple of reasons, I think Armenians are waking up and, you know, they want the Ukraine crisis to, to end because the ripple effects are not um, beneficial to them. And also they're seeing how much money, you know, even if you, even if you cut off Azerbaijan, its biggest enabler is Turkey. And so a lot of the NATO money going to Turkey is ending up going back to Azerbaijan. Um, well, yeah, there's a lot there, uh, certainly. Uh, let me ask, we touched upon Ukraine a little bit. What's what's your stance toward this um, never-ending open the bank and spell out American dollars um, funding Ukraine to the tune of, of $120 billion. Would you would you take a, a moderate approach on that? Would you would you shut it down immediately? Or where would you be as far as continuing to fund Zelensky? Okay. So I'll answer this in two separate ways. Number one is my approach to war and conflicts in general. And then number two is going to be um, you know, about Ukraine specifically. So I am a physician. I took an oath to do no harm. Um, so I am not an individual who will go willy-nilly invading countries um, because I said first do no harm. So if we are going to enter into a conflict, we need to identify very clearly the enemy, our goal, and the timeline. If we don't have those three clearly delineated, I will not vote for a war. So here we say our enemy is Russia. Fine. We have, we have uh, uh, defined the enemy. Our goal. What is our goal? Is our goal simply to get Russia out of eastern Ukraine? Or is it to get back the Crimean Peninsula that they took in 2012? Well, 
by all accounts, we haven't said clearly what we want, but we're saying, okay, let's just get Russia out of Eastern Ukraine. If you ask Zelensky, he says, get them out of Eastern Ukraine and give back the Crimean Peninsula. So our goals are not clearly defined. And obviously the timeline is not clearly defined. We have no end. So for war in general, do no harm, clear enemy mm -hmm. goal and timeline. Now for Ukraine specifically, I mean, we've spent, I, I don't know how many billion, I've lost count, but I think there was another 25 billion just, just sent there. Um, I think Joe Biden gave about $700 per person for the people in Maui, right? right? That money could be better spent on emergency efforts here. We have 20 billion spent in California alone on homelessness, right? We could address the homelessness problem here. Um, so sending that money over, finding far-reaching problems to fix and not fixing the problems in our own backyard is a reason why we very quickly need to put an end to this conflict in Ukraine. Um, and no opposition towards the Ukrainian people. If you look at the money, right, it's making a U-turn. We're sending all that money to Ukraine. Ukraine is buying American arms. Correct. So it's we're not sending $25 billion to Ukraine. We're sending $25 billion to our weapons manufacturers, those lobbyists, those corporations by way of Ukraine. So that's another reason why this whole notion of corporate welfare, all of our tax money going to these very large corporations who are profiteering off of the instability that we are causing in the name of Ukrainian freedom. That is a poor use of our dollars and those should be spent here domestically. Yeah, well, Absolutely. Um, to the extent that they should be spent here domestically, certainly domestically should be first. But yeah, I would love to see more congressmen kind of cracking down or demanding accountability for things such as what the United States did in 2014, leading coups, um, essentially sponsoring sponsoring the overthrow of democratically elected governments, you know, with Victoria Newland and all those goons mm. in the, the State Department and in the deep state. They're all throughout Washington. I'd love right. to see congressmen, congresswomen everyone in Washington demand accountability for United States interventionism, um, which sets the groundwork. I think you kind of hinted at this or, or mentioned it. It really lays the groundwork for these interventions and the bellicosity and, and the, uh, the war that ends up happening in Eastern Europe and other places mm -hmm. as well. I, I think it's fair to say. And I, and I think that is why people are very, I think that is why people are very exasperated with their elected officials because people want honesty, they want consistency, they want predictability. So if you say these are my guiding principles, this is what I will use to, uh, you know, make allies defend, um, you know, people defend sides in war. But you know, why do we, why do we invade and help one country, but not invade and help another country? For example, a lot of people say, you know, why do we not stop China's crackdown on the Uyghurs? Um, and so well, because the or Uyghurs Yemen. have nothing yeah. to exploit. Yeah. Let's, right, let's just say the, the, the painful truth. But if you say, okay, we are driven by the Constitution and we will use the Constitution as our guiding principles so that if there is a country that espouses those liberties and that is under attack by another country, yes, then we will swoop in. But I think unless we have a clearly stated, consistent driving set of principles, people are going to be suspicious of their government. Yeah, yeah, especially when a lot of times we're funding both sides of a conflict, you know, whether it's Iran, Iraq in the early 1980s, or um, when just in recent wow. years, we've we participated in the Saudi war in Yemen, because, you know, there are these people who are seen as right. a proxy just because they're Shiite. And of course, we can't have that happening. So we end up serving essentially as 
ISIS's air force in Yemen. And there's a horrible, I don't know if genocide is a strong word, but there are a lot of innocent women, children, families there that are suffering at the hands of United States, at least sponsorship of Saudi aggression um, in that war in Yemen. And, and like you mentioned, other places around the world too. Yeah. People are wondering what's so special about Ukraine other than the fact that it's a giant piggy bank for the deep staters and the Biden family making money. Why are they so special yet? There are terrible right. things happening all around the globe, as you mentioned. Very fair question. Nice. Um, let me let me back up a little bit because um, there's a ton there. We could we could almost do foreign policy the whole time. Uh, sounds like you're you're pretty well versed, which is a good thing. Um, let me back up and just say, what are some of the key issues that you're really kind of running on as as your so-called platform? Um, what's really driving you kind of at that at that House of Representatives, that Article One of the Constitution scale, the big picture? What are what are those issues for you? Um, so issues for me, you know, number one, smaller government, lower taxes. Uh, number two, um, protecting our liberties against infringement by all levels of government, local, state, federal. Uh, number three, securing our borders, making sure that we have a selective, fair, efficient immigration system that allows us to take in the best of the best. Uh, number four, no unnecessary wars. Uh, number five, uh, focusing on quality education for our children and espousing parental rights uh, and making sure that uh, the quality of our kids' education allows them to have real world skills, um, to be innovative and also to be competitive on the world stage. Those are some of the biggest uh, platforms that I'm running on. Of sure. course, obviously crime and homelessness. Those are more local. However, there still are maneuvers that the federal government can do to help out with the more local efforts for, against crime and homelessness. And what are some of those, um, some of those issues uh, or how, how can they intervene um, specifically? So for example, homelessness, right? Um, and California has spent $20 billion trying to solve their homelessness problem. And all that they've done is made it worse. Yeah. I, as a physician can tell you, and I know intimately, there is 50 to 75% coexistence of substance abuse. If you don't treat, if you don't cure the substance abuse, you will not cure the homelessness. Yeah. So the fact that Karen Bass is housing these people in hotels and doing nothing else, there's no substance abuse treatment linked on that, piggybacked on that, and then they trash the yes. rooms and then they deal drugs and they become combative and she wonders, you know, that's like you saying, I'm going to build this brand new hospital. I'm going to, I'm going to invite all these sick people into the hospital, but you neglect to hire doctors and nurses and therapists. And then these sick people in your beautiful, expensive hospital aren't getting better. And you're wondering why. Um, so I, as a physician, have a unique knowledge of how you need to treat the coexisting mental illness, not just substance abuse, but there are also people who are complete, like very mentally ill, schizophrenic, bipolar, who need to be hospitalized temporarily, get on their medications, and then be discharged to a community clinic where they can get it as an outpatient. So how is the, but that's again, sure. more local level. How is the federal government going to help? You cannot dress these people for success, the substance abuse, if fentanyl is coming across our border. Something like threefold increase in fentanyl coming into our country. So the fact that we have porous borders. The fact that our president does not stand up to the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party is not our friends. They are not our friends. In China, drug abuse, drug dealing is punishable by death, but they think it's completely okay to export 
the starting ingredients over to our neighbor, Mexico, which then creates their fentanyl and then ships it over through our porous border. So it's going to be teamwork. The federal government can crack down. You can uh, make sure that you have very stiff penalties for people who deal drugs, not people who use. People who use, they need to go on substance abuse treatment. But the people who deal drugs, bring back the stiff penalties. We have a weak on crime local DA here, George Gascone, who lets whatever he feels like not prosecuting go by. And then again, they wonder why crime has skyrocketed and homelessness has skyrocketed. Sure. Selective prosecutions, right? That's that in and of itself is a civil rights violation. Um, and we're, we're seeing that at the federal level currently right, right now, very selective prosecutions um, on the former president mm-hmm. by the current, current regime. Um, yeah. And going back to immigration, right. I agree. It is it is an issue. Now, a lot of libertarians, especially a lot of kind of left libertarians, don't want to see any border um, between nations. And to me, as more of a propertarian, you know, I'd say, well, first of all, good good fences make good neighbors because it allows respect. It actually says, okay, this is where our laws and regulations end, and this is where yours begin. Um, this is our jurisdiction. That is your jurisdiction. Right. We want to be friends. We want to be peaceful and trade, mm-hmm. and we want to visit each other's countries. But right. my policies, you know, as a Californian cannot spill over into the state of Baja, California, you know, or what have you, um, or whatever, whichever state it might be in Mexico and vice versa. And right now, even we have property right. owners along the border. Uh, you know this. We, we've all seen it. Um, properties are being trashed. There's trespassing everywhere. There's drug dealing going on, human trafficking, um, people being snuck across that border, across right. private ranches and across private homes. These people are in danger. Yeah. And I don't see this as such a complicated um, libertarian issue. It's like we have property rights violations and we have endangered American citizens, right? Right along the border. I, I don't think this even needs to be partisan. It's just, we can talk about the proper role of how many immigrants do we bring in, immigration policy, how loose, how open or restrictive should it be? But man, right now, let's stanch the bleeding, right? I mean, and it's it's not just that. I, so you always have to ask yourself, you know, who is going to profit and how. Um, so, you know, I, there are tens of thousands of uh, asylum seekers coming in who register and then they, they are lost to follow up. And, you know, maybe their court date is going to come up in two years or three years. You know, I, there is a big voter registration drive going on in Glendale where we're trying to get the disengaged Armenians to, to vote, to register and also vote. And I'm looking at how to register in California And you need a driver's license, which California will give to anybody who's not Mm -hmm. a citizen, who's undocumented. And then you need to sign an affidavit at the end saying that you're a citizen and eligible to vote. That is it. Right. That is it. There is no objective. There's no objective verification of that. And so, hey, if you let in 50,000 people and they suddenly become voters who are sympathetic to you, why not have an open border? Mm -hmm. Right. So from a if you're going to be a politically cynical person and saying, you know, there are people who are benefiting from this because they simply want to create voters for themselves and they're letting them in. Uh, That's on the one hand, but also on the other, you know, if this was the United States of the 1870s where you had no um, public um, programs, you had no Medicare, you had no Medicaid, it was just you and the frontier, that would be fine letting people in. But now we have Um, you know, social security, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we have these safety net programs, 
And if you're letting people in, that net is going to fray and it's going to buckle. Under well, that's the right. So that is also a reason why today, you know, we have public safety services that are funded by taxpayers and we are going to let people in in a controlled fashion so we can keep track of them. They can also contribute as productive members. And so all of us can benefit without overloading the system. Yeah. And I think it was even Milton Friedman. Um, Milton Friedman years ago said you cannot have uh, open borders and a generous welfare system in place. I mean, it's a you have people right. coming in who didn't right. even pay into Social Security or didn't pay tax dollars yet. And they arrive and some of them, not all, have to go on the public dole almost right away. We've seen that all over California. And it's yep. a problem, frankly. And, and that's fine. For example, if somebody comes in as a refugee, they're vetted. Um, they come in and like, okay, you're going to be on public subsistence for a year until you learn the language, get on your feet, get a job, boom, you're done. We have a clear goal. We have a clear timeline, right? So I'm not going to say that we should get rid of that entirely. But right now, there is there is no system, right? We need a system because there is no system. And I point to Canada's immigration system. A lot of people think that Canada is this bastion of the far left, you know, very liberal. No, they are extremely choosy with whom they let in their country. And they have a points-based system, right? And you score higher points if you are, number one, younger. Sure. Number two, speak the language, either English or French. Number three, are educated. Number four, possess a skill. You know, for example, you are an electrician, you are a carpenter. We have a supply housing crisis and we need more people to help build homes. So that is how they say, okay, we're gonna be picky and choosy with our immigrants. And that is why, um, you know, that is how their system works. And I think if we emulate something similar to that, it would be better for us. Yes. And the, the system that the United States have, or really the system that we do not have, which is an ad hoc kind of just disastrous lack of a, right. of a true policy, it ends up favoring people who can yep. sneak across the border because all those doctors, engineers, scientists, or, or even laborers from, let's say, East Asia or from Africa or from elsewhere around the world, well, they can't just come in. They can't come in without a visa. They can't come in without any kind of documentation, right? So we have this de facto discrimination that's just kind of a wink and a nod. It's allowed to happen. And I think it's, we're seeing the, um, we're definitely seeing the, uh, the right. consequences of that. And it's fundamentally, I hate to use the word fair or unfair, but it's unfair as, as our liberal friends like to say. Um, but we're supposed to just kind of ignore this, right? It just kind of let it go on. We need the labor. The Chamber of Commerce right. wants the cheap labor. Um, the, the Democrats want the voters and henceforth, it's just going right. to continue on. And, and, on and, and so on, one, one right? thing that people also don't realize, um, so there are two types of, you know, quote, illegal or undocumented immigrants. They're the ones who come in undocumented across the border, but they're also ones who come in legally with a tourist visa for 90 days and then overstay their visa. Um, and it's interesting because those numbers prior to COVID it was about equal. So about every year, about half a million people snuck in across the border. But another half million people came in legally via plane, train or automobile through an airport, overstayed their visa and never left. Uh, now, with the Biden administration being so open arms, the people coming in through the border, the poorest border, it's probably reached, I think, about two million now, two million per year. Um, but still, we have those 500,000 people that are coming in legally and then overstaying their visas. So even if you sealed the border and let nobody in, there would still be half a million people coming in legally, overstaying their visas and therefore becoming undocumented immigrants. So we need, we need more funding for ICE, for example, to track them down and say, okay, you've overstayed your visa, get out. Yeah. And autonomy too, for states, for states that have 
um, their own vested interest in protecting their borders. I, I don't want to see any more federal um, meddling, federal um, just causing problems, throwing out roadblocks, almost literally um, on one side of the Rio Grande, almost literally that's happening with the Biden administration, preventing, for example, Texas from just protecting its own citizens along the border. Um, one other thing I'd throw out there on, on immigration is maybe a pet peeve uh, of mine, but the whole refugee thing, you know, refugee, right. we're taking in refugees, which means basically the first country over, right? It's traditionally, that's my understanding of how refugee, you know, you're fleeing a war-torn right. country, you just get over the border, right? Um, you know, we like to think of sound of music. Oh, wow, they're fleeing, you know, like the the Nazis in Austria or whatever. Oh, we made it to Switzerland yeah. or whatever, uh, the Von Trapps. But um, what, what is this refugee thing? And this is a rhetorical question, but the whole refugee thing where they're coming in, like they're skipping, they're going across five countries from Central yeah. America through a thousand miles of yeah. Mexico. And then they say, oh, yeah, we're refugees. Yeah. We'll be a refugee right. in Mexico or Guatemala or what have you. Instead, it's, no, I got to get to El Paso or I got to get to Arizona or Texas or, or California. I don't buy it. You know, it's, it's a broken system. And, 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 and again, the, there is, you know, there are refugees. So, for example, my parents were refugees. So my parents lived in the Middle East in the late 70s. And so when there was the civil unrest, the civil war in Lebanon, uh, there was the Ba'athist revolution in Iraq, where my father is from. Uh, there's the um, uh, Iranian revolution, right, in the in the late 70s. So I and I'm not going to lie, right, my parents were immigrants and they came here and they and they uh, got naturalized through, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Amnesty. They got through amnesty. So we, we shouldn't say completely no. And that is why I think, again, I like mm -hmm. to be very professorial, very systematic about it. If we had a points-based system where you get points for, okay, like I said, you have a unique job skill, you have an education, you are fluent in the language, um, you're younger, you have somebody here, for example, and you are ranked, refugees could still apply through that system. However, their applications would be reviewed first. They wouldn't get preference as far as being high on the list, but they would get preferences. Okay, we're going to look through and see where you are. Yes or no. In the meantime, you wait in, you know, your home country or wherever you are, Mexico, you don't come here and wait it out where you just get lost on the streets or sleep on the street corners in New York City like they're doing now. So I think if we actually had an objective way so that the naysayers don't say, oh, Greg, you're just being a mean hearted individual and you don't want to let these people in because they don't look like you. They're brown. Um, well, no, if we have this points based system, the numbers don't lie and everybody is subject to the numbers. Yeah. And we need to get away from the ad hoc system, too. I, I, I like the fact of actually having a conversation about, OK, we might disagree in the end or we might find points of agreement. But let's sit down and go through these you know, points based system. You know, what, what are going to be the points? Who's going to fund it or not fund it? Um, but at the end of the day, I say, let's go back to the Constitution. What does it say? Well, it says, I believe that Congress essentially is going right. to control uh, rules of naturalization. And so therefore, it should not be coming from the executive branch. It's like, yeah, you sit this one out, Biden or Trump or whoever it is. It's got to be Congress mm -hmm. making the law as far as who gets to come in and how we handle this. And um, 
I think at the very least, yeah, we should sit down and have this, have objective criteria that we go through and have a reasoned mm-hmm. discussion as far as how we're going to handle our borders yeah. and who comes in, who's going to be naturalized. Absolutely. Precisely. I say bring it back to the constitution. So let me, let me ask, um, as far as some of the other issues, um, you know, give us some other examples. You mentioned some of mm-hmm. your other stances. Um, what else do we need to work on, you know, in Congress and the House of Representatives? What else, what else should congressmen be doing? And if you get to Washington, what else are you going to be working on? So right now, um, children's education parental rights is a big concern in California. Um, So, you know, since uh, probably it started in 2014 when Jerry Brown passed, um, I think it was the FAIR Act that said that um, children who are, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, LGBTQ um, should be, you know, treated equally and should have an inclusive kind of education. Fine. Sounds good on paper. Over the last 10 years, that has snowballed and gone completely wayward uh, based on, I think, what the original intents were. But more concerningly, uh, parents are being shut out of the discussion. Uh, COVID was big. So, you know, the, the awakening of the parents, COVID was big because, you know, I listen, I'm, well, I was asleep, right? Doing my nine to five, you were asleep. We didn't really realize what was happening and what kinds of laws were passed. And then when COVID hit, I mean, I unfortunately went into overdrive because I'm an ICU physician, so I was, you know, further uh, distracted. But these parents, they were at home because, you know, their, their jobs had shut down and then their children were learning remotely. And then they were looking over their shoulders and thinking to themselves, what the heck are you learning? Um, and so that is why parents started becoming engaged. And um, there's this whole battle kicking off between the local school boards who want more control of the education and then the state, which is try- trying to indoctrinate not educate the children. And I can say that not because, oh, I'm some homophobic, transphobic parent. If you look at the test scores in California over the last decade, since we've been having the same uh, test to compare apples to apples, our performance has gone down. I think we're 44 or maybe even dead last, depending on which metric you look at. So when I say indoctrination over education, they are not educating our youth. So how would I uh, change this? How would I change it on the federal level? I think American glory has waned because we are no longer focusing on marketable skills. For example, STEM, science, math, right? You had the um, space race of the 60s where the National Science Foundation federally was saying, okay, we're going to encourage children to learn science and math just so we can make it to the moon first. And those are really our glory days because that is when the United States, we were creating, we were inventing, we were innovating. Now we no longer do that because most children can't even read a credit card statement, let alone um, try to you know, chart a path to the moon. So what I, would, what I would do is I would actually in Congress say, okay, the lowest 10% of performing states, their math and science curriculum would fall under federal control because no matter where you are, right, geometry, algebra, chemistry, those don't change from state to state. So you would take that out of the hands of the failing state governments and then the local stuff, English, language, history, um, the, uh, art, music, those would be under local control with the school board. So that way, when you have Sacramento kind of doling out these unreasonable policies um, that are leading to objective failure based on test scores, then you can say, okay, clearly Sacramento, you failed. Let us halfway partially take control of the math and science, which I think from a uh, not just an education standpoint, but from a um, 
national security standpoint, right? I mean, there are these stories, I think very recently, there was a Chinese national, a, natu- a naturalized Chinese national in the Navy that was selling state secrets to the Chinese Communist Party. Why? Because our kids aren't learning math and science. We're having to import it. So as a matter of national security, I think we should really focus on getting our kids to be math nerds. And then, like I said, the local stuff, languages, history, arts, um, those can be under the control of the local school boards until the test scores improve. And we say, okay, state, you, you've now you know gotten better. Well, now we're going to hand it back completely and then focus on other failing states. That is how I would address that parental involvement education piece uh, federally. Um, interesting. Uh, different different perspective. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, so you wouldn't defund the Department of Education or abolish so it? In, no. So what I would do is... So, I say tongue in cheek to a certain well, extent. Well, actually, so uh, in 1979, I believe it was, uh, um, Carter separated the Health and Human Services from the Department of Education. Okay. Now you have two bloated uh, departments. So actually what I would do is I would re I would fuse them together. I would, I would slash and burn. I would fuse them together for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, education and sorry, and health and human services. So, um, education, as far as higher level education, college, et cetera, I think department of education is misguided and is not using their abilities wisely. Um, but also with health and human services, right? So human services include something like welfare, the welfare, uh, federal welfare program, you know, women and families on welfare, they need job training. They need financial literacy training. How are they going to get the skills to get themselves out of poverty? Also, if they don't know how to determine, oh, my credit card payment, 90% of it is going towards interest and only 10% of it is going towards my principal, they will forever be locked in this cycle of debt, which is exactly what the banking corporations want, right? So I think if you meld, if you joined back slimmed down and joined back the Department of Education with Health and Human Services as it was before Jimmy Carter, of course, Democrats, right? All about big government. That is what I would do. I wouldn't necessarily abolish it, but I would just kind of uh, decrease it and fuse it back again. In addition, me being a physician, health and human services, public health is 90% education, right? Exercise more. These are the kinds of foods that you should eat. This is how you can lower your blood pressure naturally without you having to use uh, medications and enriching the pharmaceutical companies. So the majority, and I will say almost the entirety of public health is education. So that is why I think we need to fuse back the Department of Education with the Department of Health and Human Services um, for those reasons that I just mentioned. Yeah, no, I I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, And I'm thinking even like Health and Human Services or even like USDA giving us bizarre concepts like the food pyramid and whatnot, you know, or it always seems like I guess I'm, I'm skeptical to a certain extent, and you can feel free to comment on this, agree or disagree, but I'm very skeptical of government health agencies, right? Because they get going with one trend or they, they want to like help out like yeah. wheat farmers in the Midwest or corn or whatever, and that makes its way into the USDA food pyramid. Yeah. Hey, eat right. a lot of carbs, you know, and then 20 years later, it's completely different. I definitely have some skepticism about government, you know, public yeah. health programs because everybody is an individual body, you know, so it's like, it's all kind of private health. And yeah, I, I like some of what you're saying definitely about not enriching uh, big pharma, certainly because of where mm-hmm. we've where we've gotten essentially this corporatist quasi-fascist scheme of enriching right. Pfizer and Moderna um, and you know making sure that there aren't even any competitors that doctors such as yourself can pr- prescribe mm-hmm. off-label. Um, yeah, I guess it's all kind of wrapped into that milieu, right, of... Um, yeah, bringing bringing at least I guess patient treatment back to the the most local uh-huh. level, hopefully. 
Um, and sometimes I, I do admit I'm very skeptical about um, federal health programs and public health, especially after the past three years. The reason I'm able to speak or say that is because I am not a career politician. I am not a lobbyist friendly individual. I am a real physician. I'm actually a trained biostatistician who does research and I've done meta-analyses and I've, and I've developed and issued clinical practice guidelines with a large team of people. So I know what goes into it. So number one, the, the biggest thing that is missing and has been missing is transparency. Okay. When I write a scientific paper and I get it published, I have to say, am I getting money? Am I getting funding from somebody? You know, am I affiliated with anybody that those conflicts of interest, the disclosure sure. of those conflicts of interest is debatably there with our federal government. I mean, if you look at somebody like Scott Gottlieb, who was head of the FDA, right? The man is head of the FDA. Neither. I forget if he was previously uh, working for Pfizer or is now working for Pfizer, right? So you have these. Yeah, I think he's on the board. Right. Now. So you, you have these clear conflicts of interest, which were not disclosed, or even if they were disclosed, they were not popularized. Why? Because there is an incentive by well-connected people and corporations to keep that opaque, to keep it away from the general public. Um, so mm -hmm. if, you know, if, if the world that I operate in where I have to disclose my conflicts of interest and people know exactly where I stand, I think if you adopt that system, then people yes. would be more trusting of the recommendations that you levy. But until you do that, see, I, I am very anti-corporate. I'm like a, a Teddy Roosevelt muckraker, right? Trust-busting muckraker. I am an incorruptible anti-politician is what I am. And I think people are yearning for that. And if you showed a clearly transparent process where everybody could follow along from beginning to end and you say, okay, the, this is what we should be doing. Then I think people would be more willing to um, accept and follow federal guidelines. Interesting. Well, I appreciate some of those thoughts. And you really have an interesting perspective, certainly being, I think you mentioned an ICU practicing physician, someone who actually does this stuff and doesn't just bloviate on it, you right. know, from Washington, DC, and they haven't seen a patient in 40 years, other than maybe forcing AZT on a bunch of orphans right. in the 80s. Um, you didn't do that, but certain other people in Washington <laughs> definitely did. Um, you don't have to comment on that. <laughs> um I was going to ask, can I ask you some? I, I, I will plead the fifth. Yes, fair enough, fair enough. You got a campaign to run. Um, let me ask, can I ask you some quick, quicker, yes. rapid fire questions or as much as you want to answer these, feel free or you can yeah. skip them. Um, as a Republican going to Congress, I'm sure people are going to ask, would you support looking into an impeachment for Joe Biden based on evidence that has already come out? Now, of course, as you know, I think as most of our listeners know, an impeachment does not mean that uh, Joe Biden's thrown out of office. An impeachment means an accusation, of course, and uh, investigations would then ensue. There'd be a trial right. in the Senate. Would you support impeachment proceedings for Joe Biden? People are fatigued by the political tit for tat that is going on. And this is one of the biggest reasons that I am running. We're sick of it. This whole extremist impeach Trump, impeach Biden. These are not real world problems. I was just listening in the car today that the average family's monthly expenditures on foodstuffs, gas, et cetera, has increased by $700 a month since 2021. $700 a month, that's $8,400 per family. Who, who can afford that increase? So I, I, I'm, going to, I'm not gonna dodge that question. I'm gonna say, so no, I wouldn't impeach, just be done with it. Focus on things that matter to people, okay? Get all these career politicians, these corrupt people from both sides, the Dems and the Republicans, 
these there have been there. Chuck Schumer's been there for decades. Mitch McConnell's been there for decades. Diane Feinstein's been there for decades. Get these people out. And then the filth that they have accumulated, which then puts them at risk for impeachment, will also go out with them. So that is how I would answer your question. Fair enough. No, I, I appreciate you coming right out. And um, it, yeah, that's good. You don't feel like you have to respond to the to the red meat questions with uh, with biting on the red meat. That's, that's a good... I appreciate your honesty. As far as a follow-up um, to that, I would say that I like, I like the idea. I like what you're saying, kind of rising above. The problem that I see, at least, you know, my perspective is that the Democrats are bringing metaphorical brass knuckles to this fight. They're not messing around and they are, they're just not, they're playing for keeps, right? And Republicans can sublimate or, or say, we're not going to take this guy out. But clearly I think it's almost a, I would say it's almost a duty to look into this clear evidence of wrongdoing. Now I'm not saying that there was 100% wrongdoing, but it certainly has the appearance of impropriety, and there's a lot of evidence. And I would I would almost encourage Republicans, you know, that we really want to make sure that we're rising to the occasion and, and fighting back. Otherwise, it's just rope a dope. And there are people out there, you know, with with brass knuckles, metaphorically. And Republicans in Congress are not rising to the occasion. You know, we can have our higher principles, but. Everything should be constitutional. I just say push it right up to the edge of your powers in Article 1. So the, the way I'd respond to that, again, all of these people, all of these career politicians are filthy. And the way you're going to get rid of this is by enacting term limits. That is one of the central issues on my platform is term limits. So if you limit the House of Representatives to three terms, six years, and you limit the Senate to two terms, 12 years, these entrenched people who will vote along party lines and will do so, um, you know, and will do so blindly following their their leader, um, and will be hypocrites about it because they will impeach somebody in the opposite party, but they won't impeach somebody or hold them to account in their party. It's just going to be this tit for tat game that we are we are all we regular people, me representing them, we're sick of it, and so my solution would be not to get involved in that tit for tat term limits. Term limits, get them out, and within six years, you will have a breath of fresh air without doing because just because you do vote for impeachment now, it doesn't guarantee that you won't have another impeachment vote on the next person of the opposite party who comes in. Sure, um, and and kind of speaking to the the tit for tat, um, which Democrats are c- clearly just targeting their political opposition. I mean, this is blatantly it's it's horrifying. Is what's happening in in my opinion. I think a lot of people would would agree with that assessment. To get rid of the tit for tat, you know, to this political targeting with Merrick Garland and the so-called independence of the DOJ, um, would you consider yep. defunding the Department of Justice or largely slashing their budget while they're playing these partisan political games and and um, weaponizing the FBI? Um, so it, it's interesting that you say that. So and not that I want to say this word, you know, the deep state that people will say, oh, you're a tinfoil hat wearing person and you believe in conspiracy theories. Um the people in the DOJ, right, most of them underneath Merrick Garland, who's been appointed, these are people who have been there for a lifetime. And so they become entrenched and they may have their own agenda. So in addition to passing term limits, for example, for people in Congress, if you then set forth, again, whatever it be, I'm, I'm very open about this, um, you know, um, every six years you get a performance reviewer. So the example that I will give is the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps has a four or six year, I think it's a four year term limit. 
on people in the Peace Corps because they want to turn it around. They don't want stagnation of thoughts. Okay. So that is what, that is what they do for people in the Peace Corps. So definitely for congressional staffers who are writing these laws for these, you know, lifetime corrupt politicians who half the time don't even know where they are and just, you know, say the wrong things in committee meetings, right? Like Diane Feinstein or Mitch McConnell just stop mid word. Um, you know, those staffers where I would say they should have a limit of six years. And those congressional staffers should also have longer than a one-year moratorium before they go work for lobbyists, right? So that is the most clear thing that I can say for uh, congressional staffers, because I've looked into that more. Should we have something similar for all of our departments, CIA, FBI, Department of Justice? Sure, I think that is helpful to look into so that you can prevent this entrenched cronyism in these departments that are supposed to be impartial, but may develop biases while we weren't looking. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think on the deep state thing, I, I mean, I know it sounds tinfoil hatty, um, but I, it's almost like a heuristic or like a, just a shortcut, you know, to basically say or to refer to all of the, the thousands, tens of thousands of people that work in Washington, D.C. under massive federal bureaucracies that can't be voted out. Um, they're the fourth branch of government. Um, they're 90 percent or 85 percent Democrats. Right. Um, which is fine. That's the right to be Democrat, but it's even the Republicans are awful. Many of them in this, the deep state. So aside from even conspiracy theories, I think right. that's really kind of what probably you and I in our conversation would refer to. It's just the massive bureaucracy in Washington that cannot be voted out mm -hmm. by the people. Um, and so we could be more precise with our language because it does encompass right. a lot of different agencies. As you mentioned, it's not only the DOJ and FBI, which have been weaponized against pro-life parents, trad Catholics, uh, libertarians, um, everything in the past decade, uh -huh. Trump and his lawyers now, free speech. But um, it's the CIA conducting secret right. warfare around um, around the world, spying on Americans, NSA, obviously. It's the, the Department of Education. Mm -hmm. It's HHS. It's and, uh, you know, I don't want to take up our whole interview listing them all off because you almost could spend an hour listing off all of these bloated right. bureaucracies that we, the people, you and I, the voters, the citizens, we're the little people. We can't vote them out. We have no check or balance yeah. on them and um, we can't really do yeah. much about it. So I guess that's where probably you and I, I think, are talking about the deep state on that. Um, no tinfoil hat needed. <laughs> Would you... Well, here's here's a rapid fire question. You don't have to answer it. Did Mitch McConnell have a TIA? <laughs> okay, you don't have to respond. Like what? I know that could have been a number of things. You're not his physician, but what the hell was right. that? Is this elder abuse? <laughs> so yes, a, a TIA is is the first thing that that oh you know went to my head. Um, I don't know enough about the details. Otherwise, how long it lasted, when it resolved, et cetera. But that was sure. the first thing that hit my head was, oh, my God, this man is having a TIA. For the people at home, transient ischemic attack, kind of like a mini stroke, but with no long lasting effects. That was the first thing that crossed my mind. Yes. Yes. And I say it kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, I, I don't want to, as a Christian, I don't want to make fun of anyone's me medical situation, uh, Republican mm -hmm. or Democrat. But you mentioned it and I've mentioned it before on this podcast. It's a real strange phenomenon that we're living through with people like Diane Feinstein, who's in her 90s, um, clearly, and I think publicly has fallen. She's had some health issues. Uh, we don't want to make light right. of that other than making fun of politicians, which we should do. But her right. personal health situation, that, that's scary. I, my grandmother's are right. in her 90s. Um, 
John Fetterman. I mean, the man's relatively young. He had a stroke. His wife is still pushing him out there to be in the Senate. He's he's clearly not there yet. I think probably he needs some occupational and speech therapy, uh, maybe some physical right. therapy. I'm not a physician. And then this Mitch McConnell thing, which I was kind of making light yeah. about, but it's a real issue. Um, if these people have medical, which should be private, if they have private medical issues, but then they become public, it's like, okay, we right. the voters can certainly say, you got to be in reasonable health or have mental faculties that are that are working you got to wonder, like, what the hell are we living through? Rhetorical question, right? Yeah. So, I, I, again, from a physician standpoint, and also because I also have to be, um, you know, respectful of the Americans with Disabilities Act, for example, if Bob Dole was here and he would say, oh, what kinds of disabilities are these? So, again, not just saying some person's too disabled, some person's not disabled, because, for example, you have somebody like Chuck Grassley who's been an elected official and grifting off of the public roles for over 40 years. Yeah. Something objective, neutral, like term limits would be great because it would just kind of get people out. Now, it wouldn't um, solve uh, what you're saying about John Fetterman. Um, however, however, I am, if he, for example, doesn't have another stroke and is not debilitated before the end of his term, right? That's number one. Um, but also I think, there will be, um, I th- who was it, Connor Lamb, I think, who ran against him um, in Pennsylvania. I think there will be a very real primary challenge against him. And I think the people of Pennsylvania will rethink. So without intervening from a law standpoint, 25th Amendment, yeah. you know, um, you can what you can say is, OK, I think just leave it to the people. The people can sort themselves out and they will probably choose somebody else in the pri- in the Democratic primary. You would, you would like to think so, unless we've really come to just a zero-sum game where it's literally like, well, not literally, where it's metaphorically at like a knife fight and the Democrats are actually saying, we don't care if he's mentally challenged or a handicapped due to a stroke. We just want this man in there because screw the Republicans. That's why. Um, and that's a very scary play. Right. I think that's where we right. are in 2023. I tend to be cynical about the political process. Um, but it's it's a scary place to be. Me too. And I will say in my in my defense, yeah. as a voter, you know, what supersedes the ADA is I don't have to pay attention to any of that. I can ignore that as a voter. Um, and I know this wasn't the point you were making. Right. Each of us can say, screw the ADA. I vote for who I want to vote for. And if I think this guy or this gal up there is physically incapacitated or mentally incompetent or they just had a stroke and they should be at home with their wife and physical therapist. We can do that. Um, And I know that's, I know you weren't saying that, but I'm kind of saying like, man, in this system, voters supersede whatever civil rights or ADA legislation they try to uh, put on individuals like us. Right. Um, So one more question. This is a tough one. You can say, no, thanks. Um, You're not, you're not uh, suicidal as far as your political career. Who would you support for speaker, speaker of the house that is? Okay. Um, you mean right now? Yeah, or even going, you can take it either way, um, back in 2022, um, or you can feel free. I know um, you're running, so I don't want to get you into trouble. Um, you know, I'm not trying to cause trouble for you and your campaign. So I, I, honestly speaking, I again, that's one of the issues where just on the ground, everyday people, I don't think we really care about the speaker. Um, so I've, I've not really thought about that, right? What we care about is the economy, inflation, cost of living, crime, homelessness. Um, that, that's what we care about. So I, I, I honestly have not given it much thought to be able to give you an intelligent answer. 
Fair enough. No, that's totally, totally cool. I kind of threw that one out there with that asterisk, right? Um, and then maybe I want to respect your time. So last, last question. This is a fun one, not a gotcha. This is just for fun. Okay. Um, who is your favorite founding father? I know Glenn Beck used to do this on his show. I thought it was always kind of fun to do. Who, who resonates most with you out of our founding generation or framer? You know, I, I again, it, that's one of those things where, so my whole political um, ethos is not surrounded. It, 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 my favorite period, you know, is, is essentially T- Teddy Roosevelt, like right around the, the turn of the last century. So I, I, I can't answer that for you. I don't know. Um, cause I haven't, gotcha. they're kind of, you know, all, all in the same. I just, yeah. No yeah. Cause that period of mine is not my favorite period of, of, of American history. My favorite period of American history is, um, right around the turn of the last century with muckrakers and things. So I, I haven't thought about that. I mean, if you ask me who my favorite president was ever since I was about 15, it was Teddy Roosevelt. Um, but yeah, I've, I've not thought about which of the founding fathers is my favorite. Gotcha. No sweat. Um, there's no wrong answer there other than, um, Hamilton. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Only kidding. Okay. Um, well, Alex, I've enjoyed the, the conversation. And again, I want to, I want to be respectful of, uh, of your time here today. Um, I know we covered a lot of different topics and on any of these topics, they all have nuances. Um, there's a lot to all of these foreign policy, homelessness, what's going on in California, all these topics that we touched upon, of course. Um, I'm sure you've got a lot more thoughts and whatnot, but I appreciate the survey through some of your thoughts, some of your opinions and stances on these issues. Um, let me, before we go, um, where should people go who are interested in being involved with your campaign or looking more into uh, what you're doing and uh, what you're running for there in District 30? Yeah, so um, our website is alexforca30.com. So A-L-E-X-F-O-R-C-A-30.com. You can go there. My entire platform is there. I also have an Instagram profile, alexforca30. Um, I just want to let people know this is a completely grassroots effort. We are completely dependent upon word of mouth. Uh, as I said, I am very anti-special interest, anti-pol- uh, anti-politician, um, anti-corporates. I do not accept uh, special interest money. So it's really all about regular people, small dollar donations, large dollar donations if you can. Um, but I just really would encourage people. We are starting a groundswell. So go for go to alexforca30.com. We also have t-shirts there if you just want to buy the merchandise. Um, but we are grassroots, word of mouth. We're starting the groundswell and we would like you to help us continue it. Very cool. Um, I just thought of one last question. This will be the last one. Um, on the California sure. primary process, sure. I know at the state level, we've got this funky yes. new primary system where it's the top two of any party. Now you're in California, but running yep. for the for the United States House of Representatives. Does it work the same way with yes. California's funky primary? In other words, do you have to get just somewhere yes. in the top two or can you tell us about that for the house? Correct. Correct. So it's, okay. it's me and 12 Democrats running. And so it's what's called a jungle primary. So you don't have to be, even if you're a registered Republican, you can vote for the Democrats. The only office is the office of the president where there are the formal primaries. Yeah. Um, but if you're a no party preference, for example, you can vote in the March primary uh, for anybody you want. Uh, and so, yeah, so the top two vote getters then advance to the special, I mean, to the general election. Okay. Okay. So it does work the same way for the, for the House of Representatives. Yes. Yes, it does. House and Senate, but not for the president. Correct. Okay. Very good. 
Um, well, everyone listening, thank you very much for joining us. Go and visit alex4ca30.com. And Alex, I really appreciate your time um, today, and we will be talking to you again in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks. Have a good afternoon. You too. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.